Welcome to Gary on Guns. I'm your host, Gary Nolan, and a man who's a legend in his spare time. Pretty good shot at that. He's former law enforcement. He's a firearms trainer, Scott Van Kirk, co-hosting with us. Uh, yeah, boy, I got to tell you, this. Uh, there's a case out in California, Scott. They've got a, a magazine ordinance or law that limits the number of rounds a magazine can hold. And they've gone to court on this, and they actually went to a three-judge panel. The, the judge vacated their, said, nope, you can't do that. You can't limit the number of rounds in a magazine. Uh, but that's likely to be challenged. So uh, what I've done is I've brought in Dave Rowland. He is uh, with the Freedom Center of Missouri. Uh, he's a brilliant attorney, loves to sue the government to protect your freedom. Uh, following law school, he spent more than uh, three years in the uh, Capitol in Washington, D.C. as an attorney with the Institute for Justice, so you know he's good. Uh, so let's bring him on board. Dave, welcome. How are you? Doing great, Gary. Thanks for having me on. Glad to have you on. So they want an en banc hearing, uh, the state does. So most of us know what it is, but for those people who might not know what en banc means, explain. Well, so the way the federal court system works is the trials are held by a single judge and then if one of the parties doesn't like the way that that turned out they can appeal to the court of appeals at that point you get a three judge panel and sometimes all the judges agree on the outcome sometimes one of the judges disagrees and writes a dissent um, and then it is possible if one of the parties to the case doesn't like the outcome at the court of appeals they can ask for the entire panel of that Court of Appeals to rehear the case. And that's called an en banc rehearing. It is basically the highest level of review you can get before the U.S. Supreme Court. And that's what they have granted in this case in the Ninth Circuit out of California. Now, do we know anything about that court? Does it was it uh, did it lean left at one time is it more middle of the road now does it lean right do we have any indication uh, if they go on Great bond, question but so um, historically the Ninth Circuit has been a very very liberal circuit however uh, over the course of the Donald Trump presidency he was able to appoint a number of relatively conservative judges to the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals so uh, nowadays, I believe there is a slight majority of Republican appointees. That doesn't necessarily guarantee that they are what many people would consider to be conservative, but they, they do tend to be more conservative than those who are appointed by Democrats. So uh, I think that most people would say that the Ninth Circuit is in flux as far as ideologically, whether it leans towards the political right or the political left. Um, but one of the things that that was kind of shown with the panel decision here is that there are certainly a number of judges now on the court who are willing to take a really hard look at state laws that potentially violate some of the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment. And that's not something that would have been said a few years back. A few years back, people would have thought that this case in front of the Ninth Circuit was a dead letter. They, they just would have thought that there was no way the Ninth Circuit would have ruled in favor of the, the gun owners in this case. If I'm the state of California, I'm going to argue that we're not uh, limiting your ability to own or carry a gun or even ammunition. You can have all of that. All we're saying is 
you can't have, you know, 20 rounds. You can only have 10 rounds. So we're not really inhibiting your right to own and bear arms. What, you know, is, is that what they're arguing? Uh, that's the argument that they made, uh, and and in fact, the state was arguing that well, in in some of these atrocious mass killings that have taken place, um, they ended up using uh, these these large capacity magazines. But the majority opinion that struck down this law as unconstitutional pointed out, hey, look, um, magazines holding more than ten rounds account for nearly half of all the magazines in circulation in the United States. And, and they're almost exclusively used for lawful purposes. Therefore, you cannot assume that just because someone has a large capacity magazine that they're going to use it in an in, uh, inappropriate or a criminal way. Um, and I think that that's correct. I, I think that the panel reached the correct decision. Um, however, there was a dissent, and now we're finding out um, what the full, full circuit is going to end up saying. Scott? Um, well, I'm with passingly familiar with the Ninth Circuit back in the law enforcement days. They were um, a highly liberal court at that time. Um, and yeah, over the last few years, it has seen sort of a swing more to the middle. Um, I'm hopeful based on the fact that the original three panel judges um, uh, threw out the law that we uh, favorably we can get a favorable decision. When I say we, I mean those of us who are Second Amendment supporters. Um, the only thing I would um, correct Dave on is they're not large capacity magazines. They're most, in most cases, standard capacity magazines because they're the magazine that were manufactured for use in that particular firearm. Uh, and if you just turn the radio on, Dave Rowland is with us. Uh, he is a, a constitutionalist and an attorney, uh, and we're talking about California and their uh, magazine ban. Uh, and, and, you know, if they go on bunk, I think if the state of California loses, um, they might not appeal it to the Supreme Court. I think if the gun owners lose, they probably will. Um, so I'm kind of, I'm, I'm kind of hoping uh, for the wrong outcome here. Am I, does that sound crazy? It sounds a little bit crazy, but not entirely crazy. Um, I I kind of think that California has to appeal um, if they lose just because uh, a loss means that their ability to impose just about any kind of gun control is going to be um, hampered from here out. Uh, they may decide that they just need to take their chances with the court as it currently stands. Um, however, you may be correct. They may strategically say, well, we don't want we don't want to take a risk on the Supreme Court uh, striking down this law and then, you know, making it kind of nationwide. Um, so we'll see. Uh, you know, I, I think it's really interesting, though, how the Supreme Court has dealt with this issue over the last several years, because a lot of people assumed that, well, they thought there's a five conservative judges on, on the Supreme Court. There's a pretty strong chance that you would get a pro-Second Amendment uh, opinion. But apparently several of the justices in that block are not real confident on what the outcome would be. Uh, you have to get four justices to agree to, uh, to hear a case for it to make it in front of the Supreme Court. And uh, there have not been four justices who were confident enough in, say, perhaps Chief Justice Roberts' vote on a case like this. Uh, but now that Justice Ginsburg has left the court, now that 
Justice Amy Coney Barrett is on the court, uh, perhaps the conservatives will feel a little bit more comfortable in uh, granting review of a case so that they can address this Second Amendment issue head on. And they need to. I mean, uh, point of fact, nationwide, courts are all over the map on how the Second Amendment is supposed to be applied. And that's that's bad for everybody. Um, the Supreme Court needs to clarify what exactly is the standard that courts are supposed to apply when they're considering this particular fundamental constitutional right. Dave, if California loses, can they wait and see if maybe one of the justices that are on the right uh, uh, retire or, or worse? Uh, can they just sit back and wait and hope for that and then fire off uh, uh, an appeal? There's a certain amount of time they could wait. Um, however, the, the timeline for asking the Supreme Court to review a case is pretty, pretty strict. Um, there's not a lot of flexibility. So they couldn't just sit back and say, well, we're going to sit on this for two years. No, you can't do that. You have to, to bring your, um, your petition before the court within a very limited amount of time. So they can wait until the end of that time frame before filing their, their petition, but they can't wait any longer than that. Uh, I mean, the, the rules of the court are going to force them to act one way or another um, pretty quickly. It'll be interesting to see how this all unfolds. Dave Rowland is our guest on Gary on Guns, uh, an attorney that uh, is a constitutionalist, kind of a libertarian, um, and uh, a Second Amendment supporter. I've seen you in gun stores. In fact, I can remember uh, being in one when you were there. Uh, so uh, we're talking about the Supreme Court and guns. Can we bring you back for one more segment? Yeah, sure. I'd have to be happy to do that. All right. Uh, we'll be back. Gary on Guns. Welcome to Gary on Guns. I'm your host, Gary Nolan. And uh, this testosterone-laden program today includes Scott Van Kirk. And uh, he, of course, uh, is uh, co-hosting all the time and, and up to snuff as the uh, co-hosting duties are performed perfunctorily. You know, that's not easy to say. Uh, no, it's not at all. No, I don't think I don't think, I don't think Johnny would have ever said that to Ed. But anyway. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Ed was talented. Uh, anyway, uh, let me move on here because we've got Dave Rowland with us. And uh, Dave is uh, an attorney with uh, the Freedom Center of Missouri. He's a, a kind of a libertarian attorney who uh, he literally will take the government to court to protect your freedom. My kind of an attorney. Um after he got out of law school, he spent more than three years uh, in Washington, D.C. as an attorney with the Institute for Justice. Uh, so you know about where he comes from. Uh, let me uh, say, Dave, welcome back. Glad to have you with us. Uh, Scott has some follow-up questions on the California case, and I want to jump right in with that first. Scott? Okay. Um, so, Dave, we talked in the last segment about the recent three-panel um, Ninth Circuit Court decision uh, stating that California's law restricting magazine capacity was found to be unconstitutional. The state of California has come back and said we want the full circuit, the full Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals to uh, to hear that case. Um, what I'm interested in, a couple of things I'd like you to answer for our guests, for our audience, is if in fact the full Ninth uh, Circuit Court of Appeals finds that the law is unconstitutional, but it doesn't go any further than the Ninth Circuit. It does not go up to the Supreme Court for whatever reason. Either the Supreme Court decides not to take it or the state of California decides not to submit it. What is the impact nationwide? So the immediate impact, of course, is going to be in the footprint of the Ninth Circuit. Um, and, and let me make clear for the listeners, because they, they may not get this. 
But what's really important about these decisions is not just the result of the decision, but the reasoning that the court uses to reach the result. Because in future cases that deal with firearms, the um, the state may have a different kind of law, um, and, and you could say, oh, but this is a different kind of law. It should be treated differently. And what the courts are going to go back to is, well, let's look at how the court reasoned through this process, and that will tell us how we should analyze this. So that reasoning process is also what is influential on other circuits. Now, because each circuit is kind of its own self-contained unit, they do not have to agree, but um, they do influence each other, especially if you've got really sound reasoning behind a decision. Um, a different circuit will look and see what one of their sister circuits has done, and they'll say, oh, boy, you know, they really thought through this um, in a useful way, and we're going to use the same logic as we analyze our own case. Um, so... Even if this particular case in California never goes beyond the Ninth Circuit, it can still be what we would call persuasive on other courts, but it's not binding. So, for example, let's say the Third Circuit gets a really similar case. They might end up saying, well, you know what? We actually agree with the dissent in this three-judge panel. We think that this kind of a law is constitutional under the Second Amendment, and so we're going to disagree with the Ninth with the Ninth Circuit. They can do that. Um, it would then at that point be up to the U.S. Supreme Court to resolve the conflict between the circuits. Uh, and in point of fact, there's already currently uh, significant conflict in how the different circuits deal with the Second Amendment. And that's why we need the U.S. Supreme Court to take one of these cases to uh, streamline and clarify the reasoning that courts should be applying in dealing with uh, these restrictions on the right to keep and bear arms. Did did Justice Scalia kind of leave the door open for this with his decision? I think it was in Heller. Uh, yes. Uh, yeah. So um, for for as excellent as the decisions in D.C. versus Heller uh, and uh, the McDonald case out of Chicago were, they they left a significant amount of wiggle room. They didn't really nail down. Um, the appropriate level of scrutiny that lower courts are supposed to apply. And that's why the lower courts are currently all over the map. Some of them are saying that they should only apply just the minimum level of judicial scrutiny to a restriction on firearms. Some of them are saying, no, you actually have to apply the highest, most stringent level of judicial scrutiny to these restriction on firearms. Um, and because there's no consensus among the circuits, that's why we need now for the U.S. Supreme Court to uh, clarify the issue and, and make sure that they're applying one standard across the entire country. Constitutionalist Attorney Dave Rowland is our guest, and uh, we're talking about uh, what started out as a case in California limiting the number of rounds a magazine can carry. I'm curious if this does go to the Supreme Court, and the Supreme Court says, you know, you have the right to own and bear arms. You can't infringe on it in any way. One, you know, cascading effect of all this would be, I guess, that all of the other states, all the other uh, uh, courts who have made decisions saying you could limit it, they get overturned. But I wonder if 
the uh, federal firearms licensing uh, requirements and limitations could also be affected by the Supreme Court's decision here. Could yes, I they absolutely could. Yeah. Um, so basically, once the Supreme Court weighs in and says, OK, here is the standard that's supposed to apply, that applies across the board, not only to state and local governments, but also to the federal government. Um, and that's because of the uh, the 14th Amendment. And so as originally written, the Bill of Rights only restricted the federal government. But when we uh, added the 14th Amendment, that is what then made clear that state and local governments could not deprive citizens of the rights that are protected in the Bill of Rights, including the Second Amendment. So a, a U.S. Supreme Court decision would first and foremost limit the federal government, and then by virtue of the 14th Amendment, it would limit state and local governments. Does that make sense? Yeah, and <clears throat> Scott and I have talked about this before. Uh, a suppressor, for instance, which is uh, part of a firearm that uh, just makes it a little bit quieter. It's limited by the federal government. Fully automatic weapons are limited by the federal government. Uh, in one case, I can see the value if you go out target practicing, you don't want to you know, hurt your ears. A, a, a suppressor would be a nice thing to have. Uh, fully automatic weapons, I think, are pretty much useless. Uh, but you should still, I think, own the right, have the right to own them. And if I understand you correctly, if the if this goes to the Supreme Court, and they say, "Look, it's unequivocal. It's Second Amendment says you have the right to own and bear arms, and you can't interfere with it. You can't," it, then those laws might go away. Uh, it, it's possible. I wouldn't say it's likely. So one of my frustrations with Heller and McDonald is that. Uh, those decisions did get a little wishy-washy. They said, look, you know, yes, this is an individual right. It does apply in many circumstances, but they also specifically said, but it's not without limits. There are still things the government can do to limit this right. And they enumerated some of them, but they didn't explain how they reached their conclusions on those. And that's part of why we're in the mess that we're in. All right, Dave Rowland, thank you for being with us. Back with uh, Larry Wayland and uh, Joe Gilbert. Hey, welcome. Glad to have you with us. Glad to be with you. It is 35 minutes after the hour, and uh, Joe Gilbert, joegilbert.us, on board with us this morning. So, by the way, is Larry Wayland from Modern Arms. Over at the Brown Station location. Good morning, Gary. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, so, uh, Scott Van Kirk and I had a chance to uh, chat with Dave Rowland, as you heard, uh, about this California case, which ha could have some pretty major implications uh, nationally and federally, uh, Missouri continues to sort of uh, lead the way on uh, control of the controllers, if you will, um, including uh, recently uh, going forward with uh, legislation that would allow us to carry on public transportation, uh, buses, etc. And I, I, I definitely like that idea. Uh, let me talk to Joe here for just a second about uh, carrying on uh, on a bus or uh, in public transportation, uh, you give you know you offer up courses on uh, how to uh, protect yourself no matter where you are. Uh, do you talk about public transportation at all? Well, we do, and this is uh, this is kind of a this is a fudge. Okay, um, if you carry your gun concealed and do it properly and do it the way we train, um, and you don't make a big deal out of it. Nobody's ever going to know you got a gun. Um, now, I'm not saying carry it into the controlled part of an airport or anything else, but if I'm getting on a bus or something, I would take my chance with a, you know, with some type of minor weapons charge over being dead. Yeah. Yeah, I, I don't disagree with that. Um, 
there are several states, as we uh, we talked about in the last segment of the program, where they uh, are trying to limit the number of rounds a magazine can carry. Uh, they're they're trying at the state level uh, to really enact their version of gun control, kind of micromanage and, and slowly move it forward until they get what their their ultimate goal is. And now the House of Representatives has passed legislation um, that uh, is effectively uh, pushing gun control uh, to a whole new level. Uh, this was, I think, on Thursday. Uh, they approved a pair of gun control bills uh, because Democrats uh, now have pretty much all the power. Uh, th- there may be a couple of hiccups in the Senate. Uh, if the Republicans all stick together and just one Democrat comes across, this won't make it to the president's desk. But the first measure that passed, uh, 227 to 203, a lot of Republicans uh, went along with this. So it's not just political party. It's not just Democrats or Republicans. Uh, they do cross over on occasion. Uh, and they, what the mainstream media is calling the long-standing loophole in gun laws by expanding background checks to those purchasing weapons over the Internet at gun shows and through certain private transactions. Eight Republicans actually got on board with this. Um, Larry, you've been selling guns for as long as I've known you. <laughs> I, I've been looking for the loophole for a long time. Yeah. You know, the, the, they're wanting to do universal background checks, and that, that's, you know, so that nobody can sell a firearm to another individual. No private party can sell a firearm to another individual without going through a, a federal background check, which won't do anything um, to reduce criminal activity because the people that are willing to break the law, guess what they won't do? They, they, won't, they won't follow this one either. Uh, you know, making another law for, for people that are outside the law really doesn't matter. It just infringes on the rights of law-abiding citizens to be able to sell a firearm to my nephew who, you know, I've known my whole life. That would make that a criminal act. How ridiculous is that? But, Joe, you've been in the firearms industry uh, for, for years and years, too. And uh, you know that uh, sometimes the, the FBI says, no, you can't buy a gun. In fact, uh, hundreds and hundreds of times every year they say, no, you can't buy a gun. Aren't they stopping the bad guy? Well, not really. <laughs> yeah, they're, they're, they're stopping that transaction. You know, they and, and this is, I say, this is an example of the theater. November 1st, the requirements changed to do a background check. You have to, the person applying to buy a gun has to actually certify that they are trying to purchase a gun. Now, the reason what? Wait, for wait, that, wait, 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 wait. I go to buy a gun, I have to certify that I'm trying to buy a gun? Correct. Prior to November 1st, <laughs> prior to November 1st, you filled out the application, answered the questions, and he did a background check. And you may or may not be denied. And the reasoning for this change is that if you are denied, when they prosecute you, you can no longer say, I was just seeing if I passed the background check. I don't remember if it was a felony. And you get those subpoenaed all the time, right? right. Whenever yeah. you get a oh, denial, yeah, every one of those gets subpoenaed. Yeah. No, I've, I've been in the gun business since 2008, and I have never received a subpoena for an original document where somebody, some a, a convicted felon had attempted to buy a gun and falsified the Form 4473. It's a file and file, a file's full of of things that are never followed up on. Right. They and don't prosecute anybody. It's just theater. And right. You know. So, it, again, it, it's just going to infringe on the rights of law-abiding citizens. It's not going to affect any change in criminal behavior because they're already outside the law and don't follow the laws and don't care what the laws are. 
But isn't it true that usually uh, the, the FBI makes mistakes? Only a handful of times uh, throughout the entire year does anybody get prosecuted because it's usually a mistake. There are a lot of erroneous denials, and at least now they have streamlined the appeal process for our customers that um, that receive an erroneous denial. You know, sometimes it happens, and, um, you know, we urge them to fight through that because there's something attached to a record that got associated with them somehow that said they were a prohibited person. Right, and now so, they can't get a U-pin. Yeah, you know, you've got to ferret that out. If that ever happens to, to a customer, man, they've got to play through on the appeal. And there's nothing the retailer can do. I, I can't play a party to that. That that individual needs to get in there, and, you know, provide whatever documentation the FBI requires to get that cleared up because I don't want that stuff sitting on anybody's record that doesn't deserve it. Currently, if the FBI doesn't get back to you in three days, you have the authority to decide whether or not to sell yes. a firearm. Yep. Uh, they want to expand that to 10 days. So if the government can't do its job in three days, we need to wait for another 10 day or wait to a total of 10 days lapse before we can let somebody exercise their Second Amendment right? Because the government can't get it together and do their job? Right. And Wait the, a minute. Yeah, and just just so happened to cut the budgets on the computer and the people that do the background checks. And, yeah. You know, now mom can't get a gun and dad kills her. Yeah. Right? Yeah. You know, it's just more BS. You know, somebody threatens your life uh, and and you think, well, maybe the gun is the only thing that I have that'll because the, the police can't be everywhere at once. Uh, you go to find a, a, a firearm store and there's a glitch and you can't get that gun. You're vulnerable for that entire 10 days. Yeah. Is the government liable for that, for, for your exposure there? No. Because you attempted to, you know, put a, put a piece of hardware in place that could save your life, and because they couldn't do their job in a timely manner, and, you know, three days is, is too much, and now they want to expand it to 10 business days, which takes a long time for 10 business days three to days takes a long time. In, yeah, it takes five days for three days to go yeah. by in, in the way it's written. So, you know, this is just going to be a, a, additional feel-good measures that, oh, we passed the law to keep people safer. No, they're, they're making people more dangerous, you know, putting people in more jeopardy by, by extending those um, times for the government to do their background check. There's another a piece of this that, that I find uh, bothersome, and that's the, the gun show loophole, the alleged gun show loophole. We all know that when you go to a gun show, you almost always deal with federally licensed Dealers. Well, there, there's both uh, there's both licensed dealers and non-licensed salespeople there at, at many gun shows, and and it's not unusual to find an individual who bought a table and had some guns they wanted to sell. You know, I don't know, you know, upgrading or just you know going and picking a different hobby. I don't know. Maybe he wants to be a fisherman. Maybe he's selling his guns and going to buy fishing poles. But it's not a violation currently for somebody to do that private party transaction at a gun show but the mass the vast majority of those dealers there are federally licensed and you go through the background check anyway yeah and if i have a firearm that i want to sell and uh, you know i can't sell it outright at the gun show somebody says well meet me across the street in the parking lot two things happen one i become vulnerable because when I get across the street in the parking lot, maybe I get ambushed and they steal my gun. And two, the gun sale goes through anyway. Yeah. If if there's you know if if the first scenario doesn't happen, um, and so that's going to put law enforcement in a tricky situation because they're going to have to go in and try and buy guns 
to find out who's selling it without a background check. Well, after the universal background check doesn't work, then they'll say, oh, well, we, because we don't know who owns all the guns, we have to have a registry in order for this background check system to work. The, 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 the enhanced background check or universal background check is designed to fail. So that they can come back and get more gun legislation, Gary. Right. And the thing is, they have the registry. They make us maintain it for 20 years. Right. But the ones that go out of business, they've got the records, and they can go through. You know, we've had them ask for, for you know, the purchase information on a firearm, you know, from the tracing center. Say, hey, y'all have those records now. And they go out and they... they root through the storage and they're, they're storing them they're keeping them so there is yeah and we get a, those trace yeah. requests the open the open stores get those trace requests and that's when we provide that make model and serial number right. and the buyer information to the feds but you know when they call for that um you know hey you know you received this gun make model serial number on this date from this source and then we you know come up with where we disposed of it and we're compelled to provide that to them on a specific request we don't bulk export it but a gun show that goes uh, a gun store that goes out of business has to submit all those records to the closed business records uh, department of of the uh, of the uh, yeah not in yeah, 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 the federal ATF. government. ATF, but there's a, there's even a problem. Uh, there's another problem that makes this uh, even more useless and more dangerous. We'll come back and we'll chat with callers and we'll talk about that other problem. Next on Gary and Guns, Hot Talk, 93.9 Eagle. Hey, welcome. It is 51 minutes after the hour. And uh, Joe Gilbert from JoeGilbert.us on board with us this morning. So is Larry Whalen from Modern Arms. At the Brown Station location. Yeah, you're talking about how they, uh, the federal government, if you close up shop, uh, they get all these records of firearms that you've sold. Mm-hmm. But there are literally hundreds of millions of guns in private hands, and they change hands all the time. Yes. And oftentimes, and especially this, you know, if you roll back the clock a few years, you didn't even know who, who you sold it to. I remember two guys coming into the tavern when I was uh, uh, bartending for my parents. Uh, and one guy had a thirty-eight revolver. And another guy uh, said, yeah, I'd be interested in buying it. They made the, they didn't know each other. Who knows where those guns are? Uh, and I imagine that's what's going to happen uh, if the government comes back, you know, goes to some people. And, 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 you know, they inquire, well, what happened? Well, I don't know. Not I bought an accident. Yeah. yeah who knows? Um, I, I just think this is a huge overstep, a lot of downsides to it. And I have a feeling that um, somewhere like- down the road um, in the Senate, it's going to get halted, if not the Supreme Court, which now leans, I think, in the right direction. Let's grab some phone calls. Let's start off with uh, Tom. Tom, welcome. Glad to have you on Gary on Guns. Hey. Um, about that house bill, to head it off, um, you need to promote propose something to, as an alternative. It, right, as I understand it right now, um, if, if somebody wants to buy a gun from me in a private deal, I couldn't run a background check on them. I couldn't go into a gun shop and pay them $10 and have them do the check. Oh, well, that's not true. No, you yeah, can. You can do Absolutely, that. we can do that. There's even a oh, spot on a form for that. Yeah. Okay, now, so you can't, that can't happen. I, I was under the impression you couldn't. Okay. Now, because of the backdoor registry issue, if you could, we could create an adapted form from 4473 that it wouldn't tie the background check to any particular firearm. It would just be that John Smith had a check done to see whether he could buy a gun. That way you could have a private check, but it wouldn't create a registry because it would, he could be buying a shotgun, he could be buying an AR-15. You wouldn't know. 
Well, right now, um, until they get the paperwork, if I'm not mistaken, and either one of you guys can jump in on this, until they actually get their hands on the paperwork, they only know you bought a firearm. They don't know what firearm right. you bought. They, they know you were either a, approved for a, a long gun or a handgun, and unless you buy multiple handguns in the same five business days, that, that's the only time that serial numbers have to be submitted in automatically with a multiple handgun purchase. But... Um, yeah, you, you know, talked, you talked about if a place goes out of business, they handle they, the they send all the records in. That's right. required. You get, keep, but yeah, you keep private checks apart from uh, checks by uh, by licensed dealers. You would still, you know, we all know. So there, all right, let me just clarify this sale. so that we can move on, Tom. What you're saying is, go ahead and keep the record that uh, Joe Blow uh, purchased a firearm, but don't on that same form have the serial number and make and model of the firearm. Do that on a separate form. Uh, that would be up to the government to, to yeah, change that. That would give that. you the peace of mind that the buyer was, was you know, was a clean buyer. But, uh, yeah, I don't think they're going to uh, – it would be great. I, I would love to, to go back to that, that level of intrusion instead of the level of intrusion we're, we're currently dealing with and it would be more to come. From, in order to head off the house bill, you got to have something to, you know, push against it, an alternative. That would be something – contact your congressman I already have. Well, I, you know, I don't, I don't think you have to offer up Yeah, uh, uh, say no. Say no. Shall not be infringed. This is, these are infringements. Stop it. That's that's how you say no. You say no. You say no. These are our liberties, and 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 yeah. Well, and if we compromise, we all lose. Yeah, we 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 we, yeah. It just takes longer when we lose it by compromise. Yeah. So let's put something in perspective. Forty years ago, nobody could walk around with a concealed gun. This is tough. This is dangerous. This is important. But we're winning. Yeah. All right, Tom. Thank you for the call, buddy. Appreciate it. Glad to have you on Gary on Guns. Uh, Jimmy, welcome. Glad to have you on Gary on Guns. Hey, how's it going this morning, guys? Doing pretty well. Hey, I had a buddy that went and uh, bought a suppressor, and he got denied. And he's bought several other guns and everything. Uh, but he's having, and I told him, I said, well, I'd go and, you know, protest or whatever. Yeah, you need do to the, do you go through the appeal process and find yeah. out what, what record is attached to your file or, you know, that... that Get made that a pro prohibition. If you've been approved to buy, you know, normal Title One firearms, uh, buying NFA weapons shouldn't be uh, unattainable. Uh, so yeah, go anytime that happens, anytime you get that erroneous denial or denied on an NFA transfer, dig into it because it really matters. I, I don't want that stuff attached to my customers' records if if they don't deserve exactly. it. Exactly. Yeah. And you know, and I told him that, and he goes, "Well, he says I'm worried that they'll come get the rest of my guns." And I said, "Well, <laughs> I mean, the, you know, the problem." Yeah, I don't. I don't know well, what's guess, in the closet there, but you know, yeah, it. it um, you know, it, it. It sucks that that we have to uh, fight so hard to to maintain our rights. But if something's been erroneously uh, denied, man, you've got to commit to ferret that out and find out why, and and you know have it have it removed because if it doesn't re relate to your record, um, I don't want it attached to me. Exactly. Thanks. All right, you are welcome, Jimmy. Thank you. Glad to have you on Gary on Guns. You might say, you know, I, I they all fell in the lake, uh, so I really don't need the suppressor anymore. But I'm curious to see why, <laughs> um, and then leave your firearms with a friend. Uh, coming up in the next segment of the program, we're going to find out about some firearms from Modern Arms. Over at the Brown Station location. Yeah, because they're always, uh, always uh, he, he manages to hang on to enough rounds to, to be able to sell you some, some ammo uh, with every firearm you purchase. 
And today, that's really important yeah. when you can't get your hands on ammo. Harder than ever before. The drive, is it still uh, as hot, the market as hot as, it, uh, as yeah, it was? it is. We're seeing a little bit of loosening on some of the firearms category products. You know, stuff that wasn't available before is, we're able to get a few, but the ammo is still as tight as it's ever been. You know, and with this push with the Democrats uh, to push these two gun control bills, I think it's only going to get worse. You're listening to Gary on Guns, Hot Talk, 93.9 The Eagle.